Well, hey, Mountain Friends at each of our campuses and those of you who are joining us online, I'm so thankful for you. And I wanna say welcome to our final message in this series. I do hope you've had a chance to catch the first three. If not, go back and watch them online because they all go together, okay? Today, I'm so pleased to introduce you to my friend, Dr. David Bennett. You know, when we talk about God and sexuality, we so desperately need wise and trusted and godly guides who can help us bring those two things together in a thoughtful, caring, and biblical way. And especially as we come to think of gay and lesbian or bisexual people and how they find their place in the Christian faith. So I'm delighted that a bit ago, I was able to sit down with David and have a nice long conversation, which we recorded so now you can meet him as well. And what you're gonna quickly see is how deeply David loves God and how deeply he loves people and how he speaks out of this deep well of some profound personal life experiences. But he's also a scholar of biblical studies, a theologian who's devoted years to digging deeply into these matters. I mean, this guy is an academic heavy hitter. I tell you, he studied with N.T. Wright and he has his PhD from Oxford University. He's done his work, but he's not just an intellectual. What you'll soon see is what a beautiful human he really is and a devoted follower of Jesus and how that has impacted radically his entire life. Beyond all that, he's just utterly likable and you'll find him approachable. And all of that shines through in his book, A War of Loves. Listen to the subtitle of the book. It's the unexpected story of a gay activist discovering Jesus. Very provocative, but it's also highly recommended and very helpful. In it, he tells his story of his powerful meeting with the living God he didn't know was there and the huge changes that led to in his heart and life and his wrestling with how to reconcile his same-sex attraction and his Christian faith. It's a story I'm really eager for you to hear and I think there's something for all of us to learn. And however it hits you, it's impossible not to respect him. And I believe you find yourself drawn not only to David, but into a deeper relationship with God as a result of our time together. So let's jump in. Here's my conversation with Dr. David Bennett. Well, hey, uh, welcome, David. My friend David Bennett is with us. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mountain. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's amazing to to just hear of of what's happening over over there, the church history, two hundred years, great awakening. So it's wonderful to be speaking to you today. Yeah, we're we're glad that you are as well. Uh, where are you? Tell us where you are. So I'm currently in the south of England, right near the coastline, actually. You're coming at us at a really good time. We've just been worshiping and with friends and, and, touch, and in touch with God in such a powerful way. Absolutely. Uh, so we, we want to glean, we want to kind of uh, siphon some of that uh, for us <laughs> okay. through the conversation today. We're excited about that. I can't wait to get to that. First of all, though, you mm. grew up in Sydney, Australia, yeah? Uh-huh. I did, yes. So uh, we... We have I'd, so many questions arise whenever we are around someone from Australia. Um, so have you ever hit a kangaroo with your car? Uh, I haven't hit a kangaroo with my car, but I think my dad hit a wallaby, which is a small <laughs> kangaroo. <laughs> so no no big kangaroos, just a small wallaby, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, they, often people, you know, you do swerve because 
you know, if you're in a bush area, you never know. You never know. So it's, it's dangerous <laughs> driving in the outback in Australia. <laughs> and uh, and do do you do you like outback steakhouse? We need to know this. <laughs> well, I think the thing is like if you come to the UK, for instance, or Australia, and you go to an American restaurant, you might be slightly disappointed. You know, you're like, that's not, <laughs> that's not quite American barbecue. That's not quite. Sometimes I feel like with those places, it's like, it's almost there. It's almost there. <laughs> it's a nice attempt. All right. Now I need you to pronounce a word for me. It's spelled mm. N-O. Say it in full Australian for me. No. <laughs> no. What? You got like three syllables. You got like three syllables out of two letters somehow. It's six diphthongs, you know. So it's not. <laughs> no, no, right, last it? one. <laughs> okay. The last go. one is um, H two O. All right. The Brits would say water, or some parts of England water. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Americans would say water. Um, how do you say it? Water. 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 <laughs> One more time. It's, <laughs> it's and here water. in Baltimore, the, Bal the Baltimoreans here say water. 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 You want to go water. down the water or get a drink of water. water. So you can figure out how to mash those up together somehow. Well, your speech is so endearing. Um, not just, uh, we're going to see what you say in a minute, but uh, we love how you speak. It makes you sound like two notches more intelligent than you probably actually are. But uh, oh man, we we all we need more Australian accents uh, in our life. Thank you so much yes. for this conversation that we were about to have. It's such an important conversation. So many people mm. just need help to thoughtfully think through what's going on in their life, the life of a loved one, and how to uh, square up um, some of uh, our 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 deep, uh, deeply held and felt uh, feelings about our sexuality with. Christianity. And I so appreciate the way that you have lived that out and modeled it. Uh, in the introduction, I kind of shared how this is kind of both an intellectual, uh, you're an academic, but you're, it's just an authentic spiritual experience for you too. And I appreciate the way that, that you um, have done that. So maybe we can just jump right to it. Mm -hmm. um, tell us some of your story about yeah. what it was like growing up in Sydney, the family you're from, what it was like, where your mind and heart was. And and how your story unfolded over the years. Yeah, so I, my story starts kind of around the age of 13, 14. Uh, it's an agnostic atheist household. So we often used to mock the idea of believing in God and Christianity. And so it's like an old feature, you know, of the world bygone, you know, that's no longer applicable, that we fight moved on, we've progressed. And so... At around the age of 14, I also started to reckon with the fact that I was exclusively attracted to the same sex, uh, yet I was going to a Christian Anglican school where I heard some pretty uh, hurtful things about gay people and why people are gay, and, and yet I was facing this mystery in front of me. And what's so interesting is that I wasn't Christian, I wasn't raised in a Christian household, but I felt that my life was just going to be a lot harder because I was gay and I, I knew that something about it that was meant I was different. And that was really hard to deal with as a young person who just doesn't have the supports and mechanisms, structures around you to cope with that. And so I was also living in the second largest 
you know, gay capital in the world. I mean, I'm now a theologian in residence in San Francisco, so I've got two gay capitals <laughs> in my story. Um, but it, I, I, I suppose the the culture war had just started on that issue and that question, and I found myself torn um, in the middle of it all at that that very young age. And so I ended up in a park in in near my school with my Russian Orthodox boyfriend. This is quite a profound memory I have that really shaped the way that I thought about faith, about what God thought of me and how the Christian gospel was related to me as a gay person. So I was in this park with with Vladimir and he we were having this conversation and out of nowhere he kind of picks up his bag and pulls out this Russian Orthodox cross, baptism cross, this little amber cross with gold flecks in it. And he puts it in my hand and he, he says to me, David, there's a desire in you that nothing, like I can't fulfill that. Like no one's going to be able to, like you need this. Like put this cross in my hand. And I went on this rant about, you know, Paul and women and homosexuality. And I've read Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 9 and Leviticus and you know all of the verses and how could you give me this gift of our oppression as gay people you know why are you doing this and it it, it was such a profound moment of just pointing me to the deeper source of love that I couldn't see because I felt rejected and as this happened uh he he kissed me to shut me up basically because I was getting quite worked up about about Christianity and a man pulled up on a motorbike seeing us kissing and took a large stone from the garden bed of the park and threw it against my bag and drove off on the motorbike. And I remember looking at the cross in my hand and going, this cross is the source of that homophobia and I want to use my life to destroy Christianity, uh, destroy uh, that cross. And it was that voice of rejection, that voice that Deep down, Henry Nouwen says, you know, the greatest enemy, enemy of our spiritual life is actually not popularity or power or all of these idols. It's actually the voice of rejection within us, self-rejection. I think a lot of LGBTQI plus people wrestle with that because they think somehow they are excluded from the love of God, excluded from the offer of the gospel. I couldn't see the offer of grace or the gospel in my life. I was under the law of sin and death. And so I couldn't, I couldn't see it. And um, yeah, so that's where I was. That's where I landed and how I lived from that young age of 14 all the way to university. And at university, it really kind of, uh, you went in even deeper, did a deeper dive into this sort of just um, out of a, almost a bitterness and a mm. conviction that, well, uh, I'm gay, so... I can't be Christian and uh, became really an enemy of Christianity. Uh, you were you were quite uh, quite activist. Yeah, I remember, you know, taking posters and you know stapling them over all the Christian posters, gay marriage march posters, and kind of walking out with this sense of justice and joy at like you know, rejecting this ridiculous offer of living forever with a first century Palestinian Jewish carpenter in the sky. 
<laughs> it's the kind of, you know, just absolute, why are we bothering with this? Um, and so I then en ended up uh, in a place where I started to ask the deeper questions about my own worldview of that kind of progressive woke before woke was woke uh, space that I was in and studying postmodern philosophy. And I ended up at the Christmas lunch table in 2008 with my Pentecostal evangelical uncle, who was my <laughs> cultural enemy. You know, I. Your favorite person, I I'll bet. Yeah. Favorite person. And I actually had it, I refused to go to their house because I just like, I cannot abide this um, brainwashed religion that they, you know, that they uh, adhere to. So. And we started this conversation at the Christmas lunch table. And I just said, there, there is no God. There's no absolute truth. You can't even communicate truth with language, let alone talking about God. Talking about God, I mean, it's just ridiculous. What about all the other religions? What about women in the Bible? What about all the oppression in the church? You know, how could you say this is a good message? Like, it's a terrible message. And at my base, it was like, well, I'm rejected from this. So how could you ever think this is true? It's clearly not true. It clearly doesn't, like God doesn't exist. That was the, the, the kind of summary of, of my objection. And he turned to me, he said, well, David, there are a few problems with that. You just said there's no absolute truth and that's an absolute truth. And you just use language to, to communicate that. So you just doubly contradicted yourself. And I stood up and I, you know, kind of objected and said, well, I'm queer and I win and stormed out of the room. And as I was leaving, he said, well, David, what you need to understand is the truth isn't a concept in our head. The truth is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. And I don't know him perfectly, but I know he is the, tr the truth. You need to know him. And I just, you know, dismissed that. Uh, but I really liked that answer if I was honest at the time. <laughs> So fast forward three months, during that interim period, I started to experience these doubts about like this hyper-secular world and concerts and the political views I had. And I was at rallies and suddenly some just didn't work. Like I, was, I, I started to see through it. And I ended up at this pub exactly three months later, in March 2009. And I walked in on that fateful day of grace and i sat down in this pub you know with this film young filmmaker who'd got her film into the largest short film competition in the world and i asked her how did you do this like you're 19 years of age and she said well the the real answer is that it was god and i was like oh <laughs> surrounded by these christians you know and uh she said, well, what do you think of that? I said, well, look, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I think if you're going to have a candidate for God, I suppose Jesus is, pretty good, is a pretty good bet. But I don't think he's God. I think it's human invented religion. I'm gay. And that voice of rejection started to surface. And I was kind of almost ready for her to say, okay, well, let's move on then. Or even worse, to reject me. And, and she just looked at me in this moment. And she said, David, wow, I, I can't imagine how hard it is to like wrestle with that. And she stops and she looks at me. She's like, 
wow. Like, I can really feel the love of God right now for you. For you as an individual, like, person, it's unique. There's no, like, it's like, it's a unique love. There's no other love like it. And I was just gobsmacked by this. Like, she's as if she was connected to God, like, right there and then in real time. And I'd never seen that before in a person. And so she said to me, I don't usually do this, but... I feel like I'm, I'm called to pray for you, but the question I have for you is like, have you experienced the love of God? And this question, it just pierced right through all that pain, all that rejection, all the philosophical, academic, the intellectual things that I had been questioning right to the base of my heart. And in that moment, she started to pray for me and I felt this hovering sensation at the top of my head. And it was like oil being poured over me and this beautiful presence. And in that moment, I was like, this is what I'm created for. I just knew in that moment, this is what I'm created for. And it's like fire through my legs. And I heard this voice say, do you want me three times? And this voice was so full of humility and so like coming down like to wash, almost like wash my feet or serve me. And I, it just blew me away. And I ended up saying, yes, she, she kept praying for me. And as she kept praying for me, I hear, heard this voice say, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and savior? And there was this like war over my soul between two powers, two voices, two kingdoms. <laughs> And the one voice saying, reject this crazy fundamentalist, get away from her, get away from this. This is brainwashing. This was very loud, very insistent. It's a very enslaving kind of voice. And then this other voice that was like from the light and it was just so non-compulsive, not forcing anything on me. And I just like, I like that voice. <laughs> and so I said yes to my own amazement. And in that moment, the love of God was poured out on me. But it's been a long journey, you know, of confirming that faith. I didn't think it all happens in, you know, it's a journey and it's a pilgrimage um, of our heart and mind. But that took me over a threshold where I was like, no, I trust this. And, you know, I hadn't worked out my sexuality. I hadn't worked out any of those larger questions. I just believed that Jesus was who he said he was, and I'd experienced the reality of God, and that I believed that Jesus had died and risen. So you become a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you've had this amazing experience, and so the journey, the long, what I know now from reading your book and hearing from you, it's a long, arduous journey over a period of years to integrate your sexuality. You're someone who's been involved with same-sex relationships, and yet you now you're a Christian. You've got to figure out how these two uh, come together. Um, wh what did you do first? I know you were involved in a couple of different kind of churches early on. Yeah. So I was part of a Pentecostal church that my mom, my aunt and my uncle, this is part of the story that I wasn't able to tell. They all went to the same church and it was the same church as the girl that, that brought me to Christ or prayed for me in, in the pub. And so uh, that church was full with the presence of God 
but there were like cultural values, philosophical conservatism that I like found it very hard to agree with. But the presence of God was very real and God was feared there, I think is how we would say it, you know. But then at this other church, it was like there was the social justice and caring for the poor and compassion and mercy. But there was this other kind of intellectual idolatry, like saying the Bible isn't quite the authority. It's like a mix of things. We need to look at these theologians. But I remember being at the at my the charis- more charismatic church, and I just remember having this revelation that the, that the other church didn't fear the Lord. And actually, that t- church taught me that it was fine to have a gay wedding, gay marriage. And you know, Thomas Cramner, the great reformer in Oxford, he talks about his anthropology can be summarized in this way that what the heart desires, the will wants, and the mind justifies. What the heart desires, the will wants, and the mind justifies. Until God had worked on that deep, deep part of my heart that would let go of control and really see the word of God and scriptures and read them honestly, openly, without fear of condemnation, rejection, I couldn't, I could not accept what scripture taught, you know, about marriage, just couldn't accept it. I kept kind of editing it out because I I wanted something in my heart to be true. And I think a lot of us do that, whether we're, whatever our political beliefs are with the Bible, it needs to be the opposite. God has to come in deeper than that and renew us. And then we can conform ourselves to the scriptures. That was a long journey for me with, I was side A, you know, which means I was affirming of gay marriage for three years, even after having such a profound salvation experience. And it wasn't until I was in Strasbourg, France, and I met this Bible teacher missionary in Strasbourg, France, who'd given her whole life to serve Jesus and was in love with Jesus in such deep ways and had been very rejected by the church, actually, but chose to remain faithful to him. And she told me this story where basically five different men had proposed a marriage to her in her life. And each time she said, well, I know that I'm called to the nation of France. Will you come with me? And they said, no, sorry, we, we want to stay here. And she said, well, I, I'm not going to marry you then. As much as that would be lovely, that's my second priority. It's not my, 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 my main priority. And she didn't have the idolatry of marriage. And it's like in a moment, hearing her story, it just unlocked faith in me from my own situation as a gay person. I was like, if she can give up that for serving Jesus in France, I can give up marriage to a same-sex partner to follow Jesus. And that was a really profound, almost circumcision of my heart moment that I had to go through authentically. And I don't think you can force these stories and they're personal, they take time. And the Holy Spirit has to do deep work in us. The scriptures have to like be within us, you know, to, to come to this point. So I ended up receiving a book by Wesley Hill called Washed and Waiting in the, the post um, around the time where I started to ask this question more intensely, because there are a lot of very attractive French men 
uh, that I thought I would really like a French boyfriend. <laughs> you know, I've come all this way. Why not? And so God, I need an answer from you. So I got this book, I read it. And it was like looking at a mirror of my experience of Wesley's, you know, Wesley Hill's experience of like wrestling with being a gay Christian and, and really submitting to scripture. And in that moment, it's like, I, I said, God, what are you asking of me? He said, I need you to give me your homosexuality. And in that moment, I gave it to him. And it's like this, this beautiful, like grace entered my life. And I was somehow able to be celibate uh, in a way that I would never have entertained before. So I think there's that deep work that needs to happen on these questions mm. before, you know, you can live it out authentically. Otherwise, it's a law that I think, like Paul says, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. And we have to be so careful with scripture that it doesn't become a, the letter of the law, but it's, it's, it's imparted to us through the real relationship with Jesus in the spirit. I've heard you talk about uh, the, the word, you just used the word, um, you're talking about lordship and you're talking about mm. discipleship, but it seems like you're also talking about desire and like a reordering of your desires. Talk a little, I know, talk a little bit mm. about that idea of, of your desires and how Christ has reshaped those. For me, that means my gay identity, being same-sex attracted, being gay, being queer, whatever word you want to use. It's no longer about what I want. It's about who Jesus is. It's about his lordship, the fact he's my savior and that he is the Lord. And so it claims that part of me, but it doesn't erase that part of me. That part of me is demoted, so it doesn't control everything of who I am. But at the same time, it still deeply matters as part of my personhood that Jesus uses. And so for me, that's meant now celibacy. But I do also have friends in, with similar convictions like me who are in what's called a mixed orientation marriage to someone. Explain that. Someone who is same-sex attracted, who is married to the opposite sex? And I used to be very skeptical of this because I associated it with something called conversion therapy or being ex-gay. But actually, mixed orientation marriage is very different. It's that you don't necessarily change. Your sexual orientation doesn't necessarily change. But God gives you a special grace for a particular spouse of the opposite sex. And that this is a legitimate, real attraction um, mm -hmm. that can grow and, and, and a marriage can, can sprout out of that. And it's something really beautiful that I've seen in about 15 to 20% of celibate gay Christians. But it's done in a way that is very authentic and open and honest. So you, you used a phrase a minute ago about how your other identities are demoted. Unpack that a little bit. There's always been this accusation that you're unfaithful, that you're holding onto your gay identity. Like you should get rid of that. It's not compatible with the Lordship of Jesus. But because it's only about your sexual orientation, it's not about an action necessarily, right? We're, we're not talking about, I do think for me personally, the action would be wrong. To act on that desire towards a marriage with a, another man is, is not right before Christ because of the created order. But that identity still matters as an impermanent identity so that now my sexual orientation doesn't control my identity, but is, is demoted under his lordship. Mm. That's beautiful.
It's such an important message. Now I want to come back to something you mentioned because you use your you use this language to describe yourself. You say mm-hmm. I am a gay celibate Christian. Three distinct words that I think actually are all pretty wildly misunderstood. Each one of those is really misunderstood. Wouldn't you agree? Um, so unpack that uh, because you've been attacked from both sides, if you will, you know, uh, some who, as you mentioned, are Christian who say, well, you shouldn't call yourself gay because, you know, that that should no longer be part of your story and who you are. And so they're disappointed mm. that you use that word. Others who maybe of a more progressive bent would be disappointed that you've latched on to this antiquated notion of celibacy because it's like, what are you saying? We should be affirming of of same-sex relationships. And even the word Christian then, just what in the world does that even mean exactly? So how, unpack that for me, that that, uh, three powerful words, what does it mean to you? So the first thing I'd like to say is that gay celibate Christian, the, the noun is, is Christian celibate and gay are the adjectives. I think that's important. Adjectives qualify, but they don't define. Mm-hmm. You know, what defines me is my relationship with Jesus Christ, number one, above all. But there's qualifications to that. When Paul says there's male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for all are one in Christ Jesus, he doesn't get rid of speaking to women and men. He doesn't get rid of speaking to Gentiles and Jews. He doesn't want those distinctions to, to disappear. It's like like there's no longer males and females walking around. No, like there's still a way in which that is qualified, but it's it's not defined in an ultimate way. And so that's Mm -hmm. that's how I understand celibate gay Christian. They're qualifiers, and it's it's helpful because if I'm around another gay man and we're attracted to each other, and I'm I'm a celibate gay Christian, then he knows. Like it's clear. It provides a clarity that's so important. Yeah. Um, in practical life. But essentially, when you use the word gay, you mean same-sex attracted, and that's the word yeah. that's used from people who uh, do identify that way. Okay. Exactly. So at, at the end of the day, um, you, you, you do use the word celibate because of a kind of position. I mean, you've done a deep dive. You're no dummy. You're an Oxford scholar, a PhD. <laughs> you got some, some, uh, some brains in that big head of yours. So uh, as a result of your own study and combining that with the Lord's impressions on your heart in the deep experiential ways he's come to you, how can you summarize for us, for the many who are listening, going, well, what is the answer? What is the position that, what, 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 what does a Christian say about my sexuality, my same-sex attraction, and my faith? How, uh, without going into, you know, perhaps a lengthy biblical um, exposition, which you could certainly do for us, um, what is the, what is, how, where have you arrived and why? So when I read Romans 1, and when I read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and when I read Leviticus 18, and I put them all together, and I've done all my study, what I discover is this radical message of radical inclusion and radical holiness. What Paul was meaning to say in Romans 1 to 3, and he is using the law to defend those who exist outside the righteousness of the law. 
So there are people trying to say, you're a Gentile, you need to become a Jew, you need to obey the law to be righteous. And Paul says, you who are saying that, you are actually under the condemnation of the law because you don't practice it properly, no one does. And by doing that, Paul was actually, whilst yes, he was affirming same-sex activity was wrong, he was also using the law to protect gay people from the condemnation of the law so that they could know a greater source of righteousness which is Jesus Christ. And what I realized as a gay man is that there is a way in to God's presence, into holiness, but Mm -hmm. also to be radically included through Jesus. And so that's what I see in Romans 1 to 3. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I also see that the church was full of gay people. (laughs) Paul was saying, some of you used to define your lives around an action. So what's interesting is the word for homosexual or someone who engages in same-sex activities, arsenokoites. And that word is a transliteration of the Leviticus 18, but it's an action word. That's what's fascinating. It's not an identity word. You used to do that action, but you're no longer that. You're washed and waiting. You're not defining your life around that action. And so I see that as actually radically inclusive, that there were all these gay people in the early church being embraced. And then the final bit that I think is really exciting is the category of eunuch in the Bible. In in, in Isaiah 56, it says, to the eunuchs who obey my commands and live according to my Sabbaths, uh, I will give a name within my walls, the walls of my temple that is greater than that of sons and daughters, an eternal name that shall not be cut off. And that name is offered to sexual and gender minority people. It's a name better than the thing that they supposedly lack, sons and daughters, having children in a family and marriage. It's like God says, I will give you this better name. And I believe that name is Jesus. And I believe on the cross, Jesus identified with sexual and gender minorities that lack that. He didn't have children. He didn't have a family. He didn't marry. It says that on Isaiah 53. So we see the first person in the Acts church to be justified outside of the Jewish community is an Ethiopian eunuch. So David, you you identified uh, that um, you believe that your discipleship and the lordship of Christ and your study of scripture and this journey you've been on has led you to the place of saying celibacy is this beautiful gift that you've received as a way of expressing your own sexuality. So, um, but the people are gonna object to this, right? There are gonna be lots of, yeah, buts and hands raising and and, uh, head scratching on this. Like, um, well, that's nice for you, but I didn't receive the gift of celibacy. Or, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, what about me? I feel like I wanna get married. Or isn't it unfair? Or aren't aren't I missing out? Or aren't aren't I entitled to to have sex in order to be fulfilled in this way? Walk us through some of the real nuts and bolts of this, because you've had these conversations, no doubt, with countless friends. Um, What do you say to some of those objections? I would say the first thing that, that we need to realize is that Jesus was the greatest example of human flourishing that has ever, like, walked this planet and he never had sex, and he never had a romantic relationship, and he was never married. He flourished because his center was his Father in heaven through the Holy Spirit, and that he was the anointed one. So actually, to flourish is to live in the Spirit. Uh, Marriage will never make you flourish. Celibacy will never, (laughs) like, they are 
they are attending things to a much larger reality of being born again, of living and dwelling in the presence of God and knowing every longing and every desire. You know, God caters for those desires and he cares about every hair on our head, but he fulfills them in ways that we don't foresee. And I don't really feel like innately I have any gift of celibacy, <laughs> let me tell you. I live, you know, I, I, I see an attractive man. I do not have the gift of celibacy. <laughs> it's very hard, you know, to, to live in that. But when I live in the spirit, it's not. I still, you know, if you just live by your own resources, I don't have the gift of celibacy. I know very few people who would say, uh, I, I could be easily celibate. But what happens is once you make the presence of God, Jesus, the spirit, the center of your life, and you start living by the spirit and not by the flesh, actually that starts to mold around the difficulties of your, your fallen humanity and, and caters for them and takes them on a different path. And that's what I mean by the gift of celibacy. But I by no means have an innate gift. I think that's a false understanding of what Paul is saying. He says, you know, in Romans, offer your bodies up as living sacrifices for this is your rational or spiritual worship. In other words, we all have to sacrifice ourselves. We don't get to choose our vocation. We don't get to say, well, I'm called to marriage or I'm called to celibacy. That's actually wrong. We offer our bodies up in, you know, in the Lord to him and whatever he wants is what will happen. Your will be done. And that's really hard. I mean, when Jesus was in Gethsemane, and this is right at the center of my doctorate, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And that is the Christian life, like in a nutshell. And so many people are fighting about their own will. And it's like, we just need to surrender our will. There is a difference between gay and straight people. And I think sometimes we cover over that. And say It's all the same for everyone. It's the same savior, but different struggles, different sacrifices. You wrote this beautiful book, and it's been such a help to so mm -hmm. many. Mm -hmm. um, and what people might be surprised when they look at it is it doesn't read like a book on sexuality at all. It reads like an invitation to know God more deeply and to surrender to Him more fully. What's your, what's your heart's cry that led you to go to all the effort to write this book? and to continue to speak to people like us today. What's the deepest cry of your heart for us? My deepest cry is for Christians to understand the LGBTQI plus community and for the LGBTQI plus community to understand Christians and to tear down the wall of enmity, the wall of division that has been put between those communities. And I long to see that wall fall. I long to see the church loving that community well and, and, and embracing that community. And my real message is the message of Paul, of Jesus through Paul, of radical inclusion of all people, no matter what feature, extrinsic feature that they have, gay, straight, whatever it looks like as well as radical holiness and living in the tension and not compromising holiness, which respects the created order and not compromising the inclusion of all people. Like the original message is that you can be justified by faith, no matter who you are through Jesus Christ, that the greater righteousness has come. And like that to me is just the most incredible message 
that you can be right with God in every way, declared righteous, uh, no matter that extrinsic feature. You are included, you are embraced, and yet you are called to live into the terms of that love, which is holiness. That love can only be that love because God is holy. Mm. And so I think God, my heart cries for the church not to try to escape the tension of radical inclusion and holiness, but to live most deeply within it as Jesus did. It's pretty easy to sort of run to one end of that teeter-totter or the other, doesn't it? To sort of just say, <laughs> well, we're just gonna run over to this holiness and claim the high ground morally and say this is what the Bible prohibits and yell about that all the while missing the, the love and the, the invitation of Christ for so many. And so many others perhaps eager to run to the other end to say, let's just affirm uh, and welcome everything and everyone without the upward call of sanctification and holiness and, and abiding by that very nature of God and his invitation to trust him. You've done this by re releasing your desires to the Lord and giving yourself to the Lord more fully. How would you encourage all of us, mm. same-sex attracted or heterosexual, um, to do that? I think the really important thing that we need to do to achieve that is to live in the dynamic, spirit-filled, scripturally informed life of discipleship that Jesus gives us. He says we have to die to ourselves, we have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. And if we don't die to ourselves, we can't do it because our old self is not equipped to live in the depth of the gospel. It can't, we have to actually come and die and then experience the new creation life flooding in us. And I think for me, it's very easy to make Christianity a striving religion of legalism or just a libertinism that, where we can do whatever we like. But actually what I would say is in order to live out the tr true Christianity, it has to be energized by grace alone. For me, it's I don't live as a celibate gay Christian because I can do it. I'm no one is celibate. <laughs> you know, no one is really married perfectly. <laughs> if we're really honest with ourselves when we look at ourselves in the mirror, it's like, no, I don't live up to that standard. But my life is energized by this grace of Jesus Christ, who has completely redeemed my whole nature as a human being by assuming my human nature, dying and rising again, and perfecting our form as human beings. It is an amazing gospel. And I think that's what I just focus on, is what Jesus has done in the incarnation, in his saving death, and in his glorious resurrection. Just the same answer over and over again. So I don't really have anything more to say. <laughs> That's the wisdom of all ages. And so thank you so much for letting me share my story with you. And I really pray that this will be of benefit and deeply abiding message uh, for your community. So thank you for having me, Ben.